0: In the past, like, I would used to cry a lot when I couldn't get to sleep, just because I think we, we all know the importance of sleep and how much that affects every single part of our lives, right?
1: Welcome to How To. I'm Carvel Wallace. If there's one thing we know, it's that sleep is important. Ever since we were little kids, we've had it drilled into us that you need eight hours of sleep every night, But the reality of adulthood is that that's not really how it works. In fact, one third of the US population gets less than the recommended amount of sleep. We're busy with jobs and obligations and family. We stay up late, binging shows, infinitely scrolling. When I was in college, we treated lack of sleep and being overworked to the point of exhaustion like it was a badge of honor, a sign that you were being productive. To prioritize sleep, means to deprioritize productivity. And that's simply not how we collectively operate. But some of us are trying to get there, and it's really frustrating when we can't.
0: Hi, my name is Vanessa, and I am a radio host and an entrepreneur And a fun fact about me, I am currently obsessed with stand-up comedy and performing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. I can't wait for you to try some of your material here on the podcast. (laughs) Um, Okay, so can you tell us the background of the story? Why did you write into How To?
0: Yeah, so I wrote into How To because a lot of the episodes, past episodes, have helped me a lot. I've taken many notes (laughs) on past (laughs) episodes. And I struggled with sleep for a very long time I've just always been a really light sleeper and I don't know it just brings on so much anxiety sometimes and stress
1: so what does that look like uh, is it like you go to sleep and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you're up is it that you can't go to sleep at all is it that you sort of are up and down up and down all night what is what does that look like
0: um, when I'm on my own or when my partner is with me
1: <laughs> uh, I'm curious about both but I, I think we're gonna start with what's, what's it like when your partner
0: yeah with you? so When my partner is over, it's very hard for me to fall asleep. Like, I just Mm -hmm. feel like I am so aware that he's beside me and like, oh, he's breathing and I can hear him breathing. And Mm -hmm. I I wear earplugs, by the way. (laughs) Like my sense of hearing Mm -hmm. is too
2: good i would say
0: but um yeah like i can hear him breathing and any slight movement like i'm like oh i'm 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 up like i i'm just so aware right and i get really stressed out about not being able to sleep and then i think also mm. it's the anticipation of oh my partner is going to be staying over with me I just really need to get a good rest and then I don't and then it's so frustrating (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, and then that's when I sometimes um, end up moving to my couch where I know I can Mm. at least get like a good couple hours of of shut-eye before I have to get up and go to work
1: and stuff while the couch is a trusty refuge it's obviously not what most people or their backs prefer night after night so over the years Vanessa has found a few tools to help her get the rest she needs
0: I have started repeating, you know, mantras to myself and just saying like, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm safe. I can rest. I don't need to be alert. Like I need to sleep, right? Like trying to just tell myself to relax my body and doing my breathing exercises. And sometimes that works. And, and of course, like I think with my schedule and, you know, my work schedule and all the the extracurricular things that I really love doing, sometimes even that um, causes anxiety and some stress because I know I have a lot on my plate, if that makes sense. And I'm like mm, thinking about yeah. it, right? And so this is yeah. when I, at night I'm like, okay, Vanessa, like you don't need to be thinking about all of these things before you go to bed, right? Like you know yeah. that's going to keep you up. It's, it's again, I tell myself like it's okay, like I'm safe. It's okay for me to let those things go you know, for the night so I can sleep. And then in the morning, I can, you know, start my to-do list again or whatever I need to get done. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't.
1: (laughs) In a sense, sleep, as Vanessa is describing it, is really a battle with the brain. And how can a person win that? What do you do? We decided to ask someone who's been working on this issue for a long time.
3: I'm uh, Dr. Wendy Troxell. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, specially trained in sleep medicine. I'm also a senior scientist at the RAND Corporation, and I'm author of the book Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep.
1: So whether you can't get to sleep, can't stay asleep, can't deal with the snoring, or are simply just fighting for your life in bed, Dr. Troxell has some wonderful advice for you. And Because this is such a big topic, we're going to break it up into two parts. This week, we talk about getting a good night's rest. And next week, we talk about doing that while sharing a bed. And later, we're going to revisit a show that you all had lots of thoughts about. You'll remember that a few weeks back, we published an awesome episode about how to get back into reading books. So many of you wrote in with brilliant advice of your own that we decided to read some of it at the end of the show. So, make sure to stick around.
2: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design.
1: Subject to credit approval, terms apply. I'm sure, Dr. Troxel, you have so many thoughts and ideas. I'm, I'm chomping at the you, bit. What are you thinking? I'm sure you are. Go, go. You're released.
3: Oh, my God. There's so much like rich information in there. I feel like I've got like a public service announcement. Plus, I just want to dive deep into your story, Vanessa. So like, ha- let me, let me contain off. my enthusiasm here. First of all, what you describe does sound like you have a history of insomnia. Insomnia being the most common uh, clinical sleep disorder uh, characterized by difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep or just poor quality, non-refreshing sleep.
1: It can be characterized as tired but wired or when your brain just won't shut off. Nearly 40% of the population will experience symptoms of insomnia at some point in their life, whereas 10% of people have the more chronic symptoms.
3: That is, most nights of the week and for, for several several months or more. And based on what you've described, it sounds like you've struggled at some level with insomnia for quite some time, even before your partner entered the picture. hmm
1: It helps that Vanessa has been paying attention to her sleep history and patterns. And honestly, if you're having trouble sleeping, you might want to take stock of where you're at. That means collecting data through a sleep journal, figuring out how you feel about your current sleep needs and if they're being met, even evaluating what you've already tried.
0: Yeah, so I have tried melatonin. Um, I stopped taking that um, just because I'm trying not to depend on external substances, even though it's a natural hormone, right, that our bodies produce. I'm like, okay, if I don't have to take anything, I'm gonna try not to. Um, uh, yeah. And I've like off and on tried CBD oil and I've journaled like what my experience was like with that. And yes, it makes me tired and I'm not sure if my sleep is, um, great or if I feel rested and I don't
3: know if it's because of the CBD oil or because of other things like anxiety and stress. I think it's it's very wise of you to be uh, cautious about using any sort of medication to treat the sleep problem. Uh, melatonin has not been shown to be effective at all in treating insomnia for most adults. So, you know, yeah, despite the fact that it is maybe natural, just because something is natural does not mean it's safe. And if it's not particularly helpful, then why bother taking it, especially when there's other strategies that might be more effective? Because the evidence shows that the most effective treatment for insomnia is actually a behavioral one, not a medication.
1: Dr. Troxel recommends behavioral therapy because often insomnia is a problem with behavioral rather than chemical roots. Like Vanessa, many people with insomnia experience these chronic, ruminative, worrisome thoughts. And here's the diabolical part. The more you think about the thoughts, the harder it is to stop them. Which is why learning how unproductive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors interact with each other can help with insomnia.
3: You know, when we think about behaviors and strategies that support healthy sleep, you know, at a sort of foundational level, you want to optimize your sleeping environment to, you know, optimize the likelihood of getting a good night's sleep. And that really starts with a room that is quiet, dark, comfortable, and gives you the feeling of having a safe haven. Again, we get back to this notion of feeling safe and secure, being so critically important to be able to fall into deep, good quality sleep. So things that characterize a safe haven mean, you know, keeping your room tidy, trying to avoid reminders of your day and your work and your, you know, otherwise stressful lives. So keeping, you know, your computer out of the room, trying to keep, you know, loads of dirty laundry out of your room. These are ways to, again, signal to the brain, ah, this is my haven. It's something I want to sort of envelop myself in and fall into this deep, restful state of sleep.
1: Since a lot of what keeps us awake is anxiety, the antidote is whatever helps create a feeling of serenity, a clean room, distance from bills and reminders of stress, But there are a few more practical, physical things that can help. Number one, if you can, invest in a good mattress and good sheets. It may not be as much of an extravagance as it seems. After all, you're gonna spend a third of your life sleeping. You may as well be comfortable. And if movement is an issue, pick something like a memory foam that minimizes displacement. Secondly, keep your bedroom cool. The chilly temperature nudges your body into deep sleep. And lastly, Don't be afraid of the dark.
0: My sleep hygiene is really important to me, right? Like what I need to do before I go to bed.
1: You know, that's interesting to me. I'm thinking a lot about sleep hygiene right now because I have recently become a person who falls asleep with the TV on, which... I used to never do and I actually hated it. My I grew up with like a family that did that. Everyone always was falling asleep but falling asleep on the couch, TV on blaring news, Christian programs, whatever. It used to drive me crazy. I had a partner who used to watch like the most absurd like horrible mur- like murder reality shows as we were dozing off and it drove me crazy, but she was like, "I can't sleep unless I I'm sorry, this is what it has to be." And so I found a way to deal with it. And now I've turned into someone who watches, like, whatever dumb show until I fall asleep. And I'm, like, curious about how it is that, on the one hand, we have all this, like, hygiene stuff that we need, but there are a bunch of people who can't fall asleep unless they have background noise, a TV show, The Office, like, the radio on. Like, Mm -hmm. is that something you should, a habit you should be trying to rid yourself of?
3: Well, I mean, I think here's where we don't want to be overly prescriptive about most anything. I, I mean, there's de- definitely some clear don'ts uh, when it comes to sleep. But, um, you know, we are individuals. And, you know, again, just as there's not one sleeping strategy that's going to work for all couples, uh, there's also, you know, some individual differences in what's going to optimize your sleep environment. And it is true that for some people, just the dead quiet of the night um, actually can get them sort of in their head too much. Mm. And so having some sort of external background noise personally i recommend something like white noise which is a more constant uh decibel level less likely to interrupt sleep mm-hmm. if like the the volume changes as could happen with regular tv programming mm-hmm. some people do benefit from having that sort of distracting background noise as you know it sort of lulls them into sleep so I'm kind of of the mindset that yes, we have sort of these general practices known as sleep hygiene. By the way, I hate that term. It seems like dirty why, or Why do you hate it? Like, is it
1: because it feels because uh, it feels judgmental or somehow? I d- I,
3: yeah, it's like well, It's like we have like dental hygiene and we have like sleep hygiene, and it's like, well, what, right. what is, is the alternative? That you're like a right. dirty sleeper. Right, I don't know. Right, right. Like, yeah. I've Such never learned that <laughs> You're a dirty, dirty sleeper. You know. <laughs> uh, you know. You sleep with the television on. You take your phone to bed,
1: They're you are a dirty sleeper. sleeper. <laughs> oh, wait, okay. all right. So not that.
0: That's going to be the one thing I learned from this
1: podcast. <laughs>
2: okay, you're
1: not a dirty sleeper. You,
0: yeah,
3: you may need to improve on your sleep habits and health behaviors, but uh, you're not a dirty sleeper. Uh, yeah. So, I, I yeah, it, it's a little judgy yeah. and sort of misses the point that these are you know modifiable behaviors that you know are generally good. For for sleep. They won't, by the way, treat a sleep disorder. Because by the way, Vanessa, I'm yes. sure that you are like the best practitioner of good sleep hygiene, um, <laughs> yeah. as, as all people with insomnia are, by the way. They know way too much about sleep <laughs> yeah. hygiene and they still have a problem. Um, so yeah, they're general strategies that can be foundational, but they don't cure a problem. And yeah, there's individual differences. And if you don't have a problem with sleep, well then guess what? You get to have a little bit more freedom <laughs> with your behaviors.
1: So here's our next recommendation. If you are doing all the basics and they're still not working, it might be time to see a sleep professional. But let's not go there yet. We still have so much to learn about why sleep functions the way it does, about the gendered aspect of sleep troubles, and we'll also start diving into the sticky topic of partner tensions. Plus, don't forget to hang around and hear your fellow listeners' book recommendations at the end of the show. Stay with us. If you're still awake.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community
0: of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
1: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving.
0: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever
1: you get podcasts. We're back with Vanessa and Dr. Troxel, author of Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep.
3: I want to touch on what you talked about so beautifully about sort of the, the core, um, issue with your trouble sleeping, which is this tendency to be vigilant mm. at night, which has been somewhat exacerbated. In any new environment, whether that new environment be traveling or with sleeping with your partner, Um, and that this is really thought to be sort of one of the core constructs or or sort of the underlying um, ideology of insomnia that some people um, just really have trouble down-regulating those arousal mechanisms Mm, that that is sort of our alertness mechanisms, and in fact, over time, the more you struggle with sleep, uh, the more you actually become more vigilant at night Mm -hmm. because things like anxiety or anticipation of, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to sleep tonight? How bad is it going to be now that my partner is sleeping with me? That sort of anticipatory anxiety further amps up the vigilance response. Mm -hmm. Now, vigilance is antithetical to the sleep state. To be able to fall asleep. And you also use this word, you need to feel safe and secure, right? Mm. And that makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. We as human beings, we need sleep for survival. But sleep itself, when you really get down to it, it can be an unsafe thing to do from an evolutionary standpoint. You're lying down, you're semi conscious, your eyes are closed, you're vulnerable to potential Mm. threats from the environment. And part of that is hardwired into our brains and biology. And some of us have have more of this vigilance response. Now, what's also interesting to me is we as human beings also tend to be social beings. And so one of the primary ways that we as humans create a sense of safety and security is actually with our connections with close mm. others. That said, you are in a... I, I'm not, how long have you been in this relationship, by the way? Um, so just under a year. Okay, so it's still a relatively new relationship. Yeah. And yeah. unfamiliarity is also a threat signal to our brain. Mm-hmm. And again, so that even though relationships, and hopefully it's a good quality relationship, can psychologically provide a lot of benefits, um, particularly over time in allowing you to feel safe and secure, especially at night when we're vulnerable as human beings. But right now there's partly an adaptation process that needs to happen and just getting used to your partner being there, his Mm -hmm. noises, his movements, his (laughs) breathing. That all sounds like it's signaling in you this increase in the vigilance response. And that's where you're starting to feel more anxiety Mm. and worrying about how you're going to sleep with your partner. And I just mm-hmm. want to say that that's really normal. Uh, and this is part of the problem is that we lack a dialogue in society about, oh, when you adjust to a new relationship, it's not just about getting to know the person, you know, in the part of the day that is daylight hours, yeah. but it's also in that crucial third of our lives that we mostly spend asleep
1: you know, ever since you said that it was associated with vigilance, I started thinking about all the people who I know who've had trouble sleeping besides Mm me um, are are all women. And um, I've always thought about these are also people who I feel like um, move through the world with an increased sense of responsibility for everyone and everything around them. Exactly. For the children, the relationships, the job, the household, the whatever, like in ways that It feels to me that it's not just like, oh, something is biologically off and I don't produce enough sleep hormones or whatever it is. It's that I am constantly in, in vigilance in the way that I engage with the world. And that's, and that really, I mean, I sort of move through the day navigating that, but when everything gets quiet, that's when I'm overwhelmed by that. And so it feels to me like a gendered issue. And I wonder, Dr. Troxel, if that's something that you experience or see that way as well. Absolutely.
3: And there's really some actually very fascinating, um, neuroscience work showing exactly what many, many women will tell you, which is that even while asleep, <laughs> women's brains show signs of being awake. <laughs> and it's it's mm-hmm. that very concept, um, in part because of traditional caregiving responsibilities and that women just sort yeah. of um, either, you know, because of, you know, so, social norms or because of biology, that remains to be determined, um, just t- tend to be the caregivers and uh, are sort of responsible for, you know, everyone around them uh, that this, pervades the night as well. So women's brains, you know, also manifest that, that even while asleep, uh, women's brains show some heightened activity in certain areas. And and that, that might actually be part of the sort of underlying uh, reason why women, statistically speaking, are more likely to have insomnia than men.
1: I'm curious about some of the kind of like, uh, I guess, biology around threat and the way our brains function at night. Like, what I mean, what is sleep really biologically from like a brain perspective? And then how does anxiety like the type that Vanessa is describing um, and that I think many of us can relate to, especially over the past few years, how does that anxiety interrupt the the, the normal biological pattern of right. sleep?
3: Yeah. Well, I think the easiest way to think about it is sort of in the context. I mean, I think about sort of, you know, these opposing affective states that also have, you know, sort of physiological correlates, um, of, you know, vigilance versus safety and security. And, you know, vigilance Mm. stimulates uh, a physiological stress response. Here we're talking about sort of the fight or flight response. We have heightened sympathetic nervous system activity. You know, our blood mm-hmm. pressure goes up, our heart rate is in- increased. We have heightened cortisol responses, all of which we know um, can interfere with the ability to fall into deep, good quality sleep. And on the other spectrum, you have this feeling of safety and security, which again, physiologically um, it looks more like the down regulation of the sympathetic nervous response. Mm-hmm. And the upregulation of the parasympathetic nervous system response, uh, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, that doing practices like meditation or relaxation can be be very beneficial for sleep because they help to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system response or that uh, relaxation response. It's helping to cue the brain and the body that the world is safe and secure and therefore, I can fall into this truly vulnerable state of sleep. Mm-hmm. Now, one other piece that I just want to mention um, about sort of what sleep is, is that people have this misnomer that falling asleep is like a light switch, you know, that we have this very sort of discreet, like you're awake and then you flip off the switch and then you're asleep. And that's really not what sleep is. Sleep is a pretty complicated and dynamic process. And to be able to fall asleep our body really needs to sort of descend into it. And so the more you can kind of give your body and your brain cues of, you know, predictability, because that, you know, shows that, you know, the world is, you know, safe and secure, that can also sort of downregulate that sympathetic nervous system response. The more that you can sort of create positive mood and affect and, you know, relaxation feelings, that's also really good to sort of stimulate this process of unwinding and, you know, descending into sleep, as, as opposed to this idea that, like, we go into sleep and it's lights off and our brain just sort of, like, flips the switch. Mm-hmm. It really is a process. And some people, particularly those like Vanessa, who struggle with insomnia, your brains may just, you know, and the research is still coming out on this, exactly how um, insomnia looks in the brain, but there is evidence that this sort of hyper-arousal response in the brain is part of the core pathophysiology, um, sort of the underlying reason mm. for insomnia. So you likely need to do more of these things um, to help that process of descending into sleep and to really cue your brain that, yes, the world is safe and secure. I can downregulate that threat and vigilance response in order to descend into sleep.
1: So it turns out that creating chillness in the bedroom isn't just for good vibes. It actually serves a medical purpose for sleep. It helps calm or down-regulate the nervous system. This can be absolutely key to helping your brain feel comfortable taking you into the peaceful and vulnerable state of sleep. But sometimes a more radical approach is needed.
3: One of the problems with people who have insomnia, as you described, is that you just tend to be a really light sleeper. So it may not be that your partner is, you know, a particularly like, like, particularly like aggressively like thrashing around or a loud <laughs> snore. It just might yeah. be that you're a human being who happens to be sensitive to mm. every like, you know, mm-hmm. slight noise, noise or movement, movement, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What you have is what I would call a low Arousal threshold here. And I'm not talking mm. about sexual arousal. I'm talking about physiological arousal, mm-hmm. meaning the propensity for your brain to go from asleep to awake. That threshold is very low for you. The slightest thing can wake you up. So in treatment, one of the things we do is a number of strategies, including actually for a short term, curtailing the amount of sleep you're getting in total so that we increase your your sleep drive, that hunger for sleep, and mm. in doing so, research has shown that that actually can um, help you, you know, sleep more deeply in more consolidated fashion, so that you're less likely to be, you know, awakened by the slightest movement by your partner. So seeking treatment for the problem is where I would always begin, and then, and, and what I find clinically, by the way, is often even though a couple or uh, an individual patient will come into me saying. Quite, you know, convinced that, you know, it's the partner is the source of their sleep problem. <laughs> Once we dive a little bit deeper, we hear, Oh, actually, <laughs> she has a history of this, uh, where he has a history of, of sleeping problems and it existed long before the partner. Um, mm-hmm. so we find that out. Um, but we also sort of dig deeper into, okay, well, what are the specific sort of relational or the sleeping arrangement issues that might be coming into play? And that's where, you know, with the partner, we might just, experiment with different strategies.
1: I love that. So it's like you don't you don't have an answer. You are looking for an answer together. Mm-hmm. And the, one thing I like about this is that it makes it a, a, a problem that people are solving mm-hmm. together because I think that's one of the interesting dynamics here is that this has been a problem that you have had to deal with on your own. And now you have a partner and it still feels like Maybe, it, and I don't know if this is true, but maybe it feels like it's still your problem and your partner's just there to sort of like, you know, kind of like help, support, but not necessarily that it's something you guys need to solve together. And maybe it is something that you need to solve together. It's a shared problem exactly. because it's now our relationship. Yeah, I always problem. say it's a
3: we problem, not a you problem. Mm.
1: So next week, let's make it a we problem. We're gonna talk about how to share a bed better and why we love to do it, even though countless studies show that we sleep better alone. Then we're gonna dive into the surprising history of co-sleeping, learn how to be a better bed companion, and how and when to navigate the dreaded sleep divorce. Be sure to tune in. But as promised, before we get out of here, a few weeks back, we ran an episode about reading, You'll recall our listener Kate stopped reading books in 2016 after the loss of a child. She's been trying a bunch of things to fall back in love with reading, but at the end of the episode, she asked if our listeners had any other ideas. And boy, did you ever. We sent them all to Kate, but we wanted to share a few on the show, too. These have been edited and condensed. Our first note is from Susan.
4: I'm very much like the questioner in that I'm truly too empathetic and I don't want really bad things to happen to the characters I like or admire. My solution, albeit an unpopular one, is often to read the ending of a book when I start to get nervous. If the character meets an unsatisfactory end, I don't usually complete the book. But if I know he or she will be okay, I continue. Interestingly enough, I still enjoy the book even after I know the ending because I then read the book with more questions and insight. I see what kind of choices the characters make that will then lead them to the ultimate end of the book. While taking away the suspense which I can't stomach, it actually adds another level of complexity to my reading enjoyment. One book I'd recommend is Dear Mrs. Bird by A.J. Pierce.
1: I love that. I love that because I think there's such a big deal made out of like not spoiling endings, but I find too, that I can enjoy a book the same amount, even if I know where it ends, it's just a matter of how it gets there. So thanks Susan for that. We also had some great tips like easing into the 15 minutes a day, but allowing yourself to do just one page a day. That really helped Jacqueline. Linda recommended joining Goodreads to track what you read and what you may want to read browsing the local library, and using the Libby app, which has both digital and audiobooks for free. Plus, you'll have books at your fingertips when you're on the go. We also got a lovely note from Erica, a librarian. An interesting thing she recommended was bathing in the joy of others. Her goal of listening to someone gush about a book isn't to love the book herself. It's just to witness the excitement. And if it's infectious, well, then that's good, too. She also says it's helpful to know your genres and to remember, you actually do have armies of librarians who, as we established, are some of the best people on the planet. And finally, we have a familiar voice. She was a listener on our episode about loving your face.
3: Good morning. This is Rel calling from Ottawa, Ontario, calling to say how much I enjoyed the episode about getting back into reading. I'm going to share one piece of advice, that is to check out the Reader's Book of Rights. It's a great list that includes things like the right not to read, the right not to defend your choices, the right to skip pages, and the right to read anywhere. I'm actually going to share uh, the recommendation to read Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. As you can imagine, it's hilarious, but it's also really well written, and she shares pretty useful lessons in just leadership. So uh, that's, that's my book recommendation. Thanks again.
1: I love that. Once again, Rel coming through with the good content, I love being able to skip pages when I feel like it. I do that all the time and I never tell people. Sometimes I just skim a page. I'm like, I kind of get the gist here. Um, So I'm glad that there's, turns out I have a constitutional right to do that. Um, Thank you again to everyone who wrote in. It means so much to us that you took time to commiserate and share your advice. And with that being said, if you ever have advice on any of our episodes, send us a note at howto.slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. That's also where you can send any questions of your own. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend because that helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson, Kevin Bendis, and Jabari Butler produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is Senior Technical Director. Charles Duhigg created the show. Amanda Ripley is my co-host. And I'm Carvel Wallace. Thanks for listening.